Technical production for The Aaron Rupar Show is provided by Studio Americana, an audiobook and podcast production company based in Minneapolis, serving clients nationwide. think that there is something kind of uniquely terrible about Trump and that, you know, if we are, you know, progressives like us should be concerned at this stage with doing everything we can to stop Trump from returning to office? Or do you think there's a world in which DeSantis, the President DeSantis could actually be worse than Trump? Oof. I think that question is like asking me if I'd rather have like a toaster or a hairdryer thrown <laughs> into my bathwater. <laughs> like, both are bad. <laughs> both will kill I, you, I, yeah. Both will kill you. Bo- both will be objectively terrible. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Aaron Rupar Show. Today, I have a wonderful guest, Nikki McCann-Ramirez. She is a politics reporter at Rolling Stone. Uh, Nikki and I have followed each other on Twitter forever, and uh, you might remember her from her days at Media Matters for America, where I think she spent about three years watching Tucker Carlson every single night. Um, Now at Rolling Stone, she writes more about kind of trending politics. Um, She still covers mostly the right wing, so that's what a lot of our conversation centered around, but... You know, we talked about the future of Tucker's old time slot at 8 p.m. at Fox News and whether Tucker made the time slot or the time slot made Tucker. Nikki's been writing a lot about Ron DeSantis. So we get into the 2024 campaign, the question of whether DeSantis is actually a scarier prospect as a president than Trump is or whether, you know, uh, President DeSantis would be actually more harmful to the country than President Trump was or would be if he had another term. And we even close it out with some talk about F1, which I did not know until Nikki and I were talking, but is an interest of hers. So we kind of talk about how she got into that and um, a lot of other fun stuff, too. So if you're listening to this, you can watch the footage on YouTube. This is your first time listening to the Aaron Rupar show. I humbly ask that you subscribe and please share the show uh, to spread the word. New episodes drop each Thursday. Next week, I'll be talking with Noah Berlatsky, um, who has contributed extensively to my newsletter, Public Notice. I plan to talk to him about a theme of his writing, which is the rise of fascism in America, how he defines fascism, uh, how he thinks about it, and uh, in what particular respects we should be concerned about it. But for now, um, I really enjoyed this conversation with Nikki, and I hope you will too. Without further ado, let's get to it. All right. Welcome to the Aaron Rupar Show. I am thrilled today to be joined by Nikki McCann Ramirez, politics reporter at Rolling Stone. Nikki, thanks for making some time to talk to me today. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. It's been a while since we talked. I'm excited. Yeah, I think the last time we actually talked on the phone was just over a year ago when I did a Q&A with you. Uh, you at the time were at Media Matters, and uh, we actually talked on the occasion of Tucker Carlson rolling out I believe it was one of his originals on Fox Nation where um, and you might have to refresh my memory on some of the details here. But the idea was that, um, you know, he's basically kind of promoting the idea of testicle tanning as a way that men could reverse testosterone level declines. Um, Is that right, first of all? And um, yeah, I guess maybe let's start there. Is, Is my memory correct on that? Yeah, absolutely. So it was Tucker Carlson's end of men special. Uh, basically the whole thing was sort of a very dramatic 45 minute montage of Tucker's ruminations on the decline of masculinity in the United States. Everything from like, what's in your food, like environmental toxins. And the big thing that came out of that, the moment that went viral was the man kind of like T-posing in front of a like red light therapy machine that was intended to tan his balls. Um, And I think what I tried to impress on people in the aftermath of that was like, yes, this is ridiculous. Yes, it absolutely says something that Tucker had parts of this special filmed at Alex Jones's ranch in Texas. Oh, that's right. But I think the biggest thing was that it painted a bigger picture of sort of the impression Tucker wanted to leave on American men that there was a threat against them, against their like God-given role in society and that true men were sort of the foot soldiers of the backlash to that, that like no true man would let himself be emasculated and kind of like take it flying down. 
Um, and I, I think that overall message got usurped by the ball tanning. Yeah. I think that's what people walked away with. Um, but I, yeah, I, it I, was like, I remember that you posted a, a clip from, uh, cause Fox released like a trailer of sorts and you yeah. posted a, a short clip that had the iconic image yeah. of this man. <laughs> he's got kind of his arms aloft and it looks like he's in like a little mini tanning machine standing straight up that is affixed to his groin area. Yeah. But uh, you posted this, and I think because I, I I revisited the Q and A, uh, which I recommend if people did not read this. If you Google Nikki's name along with public notice in uh, my name, you'll it'll it'll pop up in your Google results. But um, your little video that you posted did like seven million views, so there was a lot of interest in this. And um, now, of course, you moved on to bigger and better things at Rolling Stone. Although I know that you loved uh, Media Matters as well and, and doing the the Tucker beat. Um, but you know, so are you, are you going through even at Rolling Stone? I know you were still watching a lot of Tucker. You were still tweeting a lot of clips. Um, he has now been fired for what, like six weeks ago. He was fired. It was yeah. in April. I know. Mm-hmm. Um, are you feeling any withdrawal from not having Tucker to watch every night? God, no, I'm so <laughs> relieved. Um, it was, it was such a bizarre moment because obviously like I spent three years at media matters and I was working night shift. Like our entire task was devoted to Fox news primetime. And you you do develop like a really intense camaraderie with the people who are watching that content every night. It's oftentimes like very heavy content to be watching on a nightly basis. Not in the sense that it's like generally vile, but it, it just, it wears on your psyche And I remember I was, I had just come back from the grocery store. I literally like set down my groceries on the counter. And then like, I just saw a little notification in like some group text I'm in. And within like five minutes, I'd been on a phone call with Kat Abuzale, who's one of my former coworkers, like Andrew Lawrence. And we were all like, is this real? There's like, no way it's real. Like, I can't, I can't address this until I have a confirmation because I can't get my hopes up because I think watching Tucker for so many years, you kind of have to like steal yourself with the resolve that the work you're doing, the like nightly calling it out, fact-checking it, pointing out what's bullshit, like pointing out where these conspiracies are originating from. You kind of have to convince yourself that like at some point it's going to matter. There's going to be Mm -hmm. a tangible effect and you're going to say, this is all worth it. And there's of course a little part of you especially like knowing the inner machinations of Fox and how they operated and how closely they guarded Tucker. I think a lot of people, not just people who were watching him every night thought Fox would rather sink, sink the ship than let this man go. Yeah. It really felt like a moment that uh, like, it really felt like a moment of reckoning for Fox. And once I was like, I don't have to watch this guy every night, like Mm -hmm. at least for some point of time, he will be absent from the space and that space will inherently have to recalibrate itself. That also was just kind of like, it's been, it's been a little restful. I'll say it's been a little restful. Obviously there's still so much bullshit going on, so many things to cover, but I think Tucker was fundamentally like steering the ship of a lot of conservative right-wing discourse, particularly online. And without him at Fox, in sort of like conservative influencer spaces, you can kind of see them latching onto their hits. Their content mm. feels, I'm not going to say boundary pushing, but that's not the right word. But it does feel like they're just situating themselves in like the Overton window they become comfortable with, the sort of bread and butter of their programming. And they're not really yet, they really haven't found that Tucker-esque, Bill, O'Re- Bill O'Reilly-esque mm-hmm. personality that kind of dr- drives their narratives really i i think the yeah. term we used to use was like um like con- like assignment editor like yeah. they're on on air assignment editor yeah so, yeah well and he would kind of tucker's role you know and let me know if you disagree with this but i viewed him as being really effective in kind of laundering the far-right conspiracy theories into more of a mainstream audience i mean the one that comes to mind for me off the top of my head and there's many other examples that you could cite but was the the bio labs thing in Ukraine, mm-hmm. where um, I even did a newsletter on this at one point talking about how, you know, this conspiracy theory began with Kremlin associated media and then kind of made its way, you know, onto Reddit, onto Twitter, and then like percolated up to Tucker. And then he devoted, you know, multiple episodes of his show to this idea that Ukraine was doing dangerous bioweapons research and it represented this threat to Russia because it was on their border. And so, 
it was cited by, you know, the anti anti Putin crowd as yeah. a reason that the invasion might have been justified. And this was back in like the spring of 22. So shortly after Putin invaded Ukraine and with, you know, Tucker being out of the picture now, I don't really think there's anybody at Fox, at least or even on Newsmax, who fills that role. I mean, Hannity show is kind of like the you know, rapid response for the GOP, basically, you know, a lot of basically Trump propaganda on there. And Jesse Waters is kind of like the frat, the frat bro who, you know, it's it's kind of a lazy show. I mean, the ratings are pretty good, but he's not really sophisticated enough, I don't think, to, you know, kind of be like a mainstream version of Alex Jones like Tucker was. And so, you know, what, what are your thoughts? You know, I actually kind of I heard an interesting debate. And I believe it was on the um the offline podcast that one of the the pod save guys does where actually Andrew and Kat were on uh, like mm-hmm. 10 days ago. And they were talking about whether the 8 PM time slot that Tucker had, you know, kind of made Tucker or whether Tucker made the time slot. And so I guess I'm curious what your thoughts are with that 8 PM hour. There's been some reporting. I don't think it has been confirmed at all that Hannity might end up taking that time slot and they shuffle other hosts around in prime time. But like, what are your expectations for now that Tucker is gone? Do you think that the ratings for that time slot um, will take a permanent hit? I know they've been down a little bit since Tucker left. And so I guess that would suggest more that the the explanation of what was going on with Tucker was that the he made that time slot maybe more than vice versa. But, you know, do you think that Fox can successfully fill that void or is that really going to be kind of a lasting loss for them not having him on the air? I think they can. I think. Yeah. I, I agree that the 8 p.m. time slot is like critical to elevating whatever voice they choose to stick in it. I think if you look back, like Bill O'Reilly left or was fired, and mm-hmm. everyone thought that like that was also the end of Fox News. And at the time, Tucker Carlson was a known figure, but he was by no means the personality he's become today. He was mm-hmm. morning host on Fox. They kind of like plucked him from there, stuck him on primetime, and it ended up like doing quite well. Um, I think the reality, like, uh, like much disrespect to Hannity, but if they haven't been able to make Hannity, he is by all means a star among the conservative movement. But if the like 9 p.m. time slot hasn't elevated him to like Tucker levels after all these years, I don't think moving him to 8 p.m. will. I his show I, is I just straight up boring. I mean, it's it's the same show every night. It's, you know, Tucker, say what you want about Tucker, but at least, dinner. yeah, I mean, at least Tucker would, would try to keep it fresh with different conspiracy theories. And, you know, I mean, it's obviously <laughs> reprehensible content, but, um, you know, I feel like with Hannity, it's, it's kind of phoned in, you know, it's, it's even the same guests yeah. over and over. Um, so I just don't really see him having, and, and there's no upside there. I mean, he's a very known, what he's been on Fox for like 25 years. So yeah, he is what he is. Yeah, no, he's established. I don't think there's that much room for growth in his career. We used to joke that like transcribing Hannity was probably the hardest of the shows to transcribe just because his like <laughs> it's the entire show is just one run on sentence. There's like yeah. no pauses. If you're looking at the transcript, it's next to impossible to figure out like what the central point is. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'd be very surprised if they gave it to Hannity. Yeah. I think Waters. In my view, I have kind of been on the boat that like Waters is the most likely option. Again, I have no reporting to confirm this other than like a gut feeling. Um, Mostly because I think Waters, if you've watched his trajectory at Fox, had been kind of like, they were sort of priming him to at some point be a Tucker successor. Um, When they gave this, when the 7 p.m. slot opened up, and like Martha McCallum went earlier in the day and they were kind of auditioning people for the show. I think Waters very much tried to lean into the Tucker-esque, kind of like really aggressive, really combative, um, targeting of like minorities, sort of like culture war outrage style of content. I think Jesse Waters' biggest problem is that he really wants people to like him. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. like you said he is a frat boy I have called him like the human embodiment of a frat paddle and <laughs> he he's the kind of guy who I think like does like has not been able to tap into that sort of like actual malice that Tucker had mm-hmm. like Tucker I, I like a lot of people have asked me like oh do you really think Tucker believes what 
what he says. And I'm like, it doesn't matter if he believes it or not. What matters is that he can convince his viewers that he believes what he's saying. Sure. He can convince his viewers that it's coming from a genuine place. And like, that's the bottom line. Right. I think Jesse has not yet been able to tap into that. I think there's a lot of things that Jesse says on his show that I'm like, I can tell you're not bought in. I can tell you're like hiding a giggle. Um, But I think if Jesse gets the 8 p.m. time slot, he has sort of that Tucker adjacent kind of personality. Audiences really like him. He's not really attached to any established political movement like Hannity is to Trumpism. And I think Waters does have that sort of room for growth, like room for expansion that someone would need to successfully be in that 8 p.m. time slot. Because it is like, it is a great time slot, but it's also about like what raw inputs you're giving it and what that's able to churn out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do want to ask you about some non-Fox uh, topics because I know it's mm-hmm. actually kind of a small, it's a small part of what you're covering these days. You're covering mm-hmm. more kind of like national politics and um, the right more broadly than just Fox. But I, I do want to ask because this actually happened. Um, we were talking before we went live that I was at Janet Jackson last night, which was an awesome, awesome show. One of the best shows I've seen. Um, but I tried to unplug a little bit, although I was still getting some tweet alerts. And there was a lot of discussion last night about Trump attacking Kaylee McEnany on true social. And um, I believe that and correct me if I'm wrong here, that the, the origin of him being mad at Kaylee was that she was discussing polling. I think she's currently the fill in host, right. For Tucker at the APM show, or maybe she was on earlier. She in the was evening. a okay. few weeks ago. I think she was like okay. two or three hosts ago. She is currently a, like, I think she is a co-host on outnumbered. With Harris okay. Faulkner. Yeah, I don't know exactly what show she was hosting one of the various Fox shows and was discussing polling mm-hmm. that shows Trump, you know, way up on DeSantis, um, which is not, you know, it's not like an outlier poll. I mean, he is, you know, d- doubling him up among Republicans oh, yeah. and polling right now nationally. Mm-hmm. But Trump was mad because I guess he believes that he's even further ahead than the polling that she was discussing indicates. And so he called her milk toast, um, which <laughs> led later on to a memorable scene where Chip Roy went on her show and use the word milk toast in kind of a winking, nodding way, almost kind of like amplifying Trump's attack on her on her show, which I thought was very disrespectful. But, um, you know, I saw Ron Filipowski, you know, pointing out that this was highly unusual for Trump to attack a political appointee of his. I mean, of course, he's mm-hmm. attacked Bill Barr. He's attacked, you know, any number of people, Chris Ray, F- FBI director who he nominated or appointed. But, you know, Kaylee was someone who uh, lied for years for him. Um what did you make of that? Do you think that there's any sort of strategy behind that? Or is that just just him lashing out? Because it struck me as kind of a bizarre thing for him to do as well. I think I don't think there's like an underlying strategy behind him. I think that like two things are very important here. One is that Trump has singled out DeSantis as his primary opponent for 2024. Mm-hmm. He has been doing that for months, even before DeSantis officially entered the race. Um, And in that vein, he has repeatedly attacked Fox News for being, as as he perceives, overly friendly to DeSantis. The polling numbers have come up, the like amount of segments DeSantis has had on Fox has come up. Uh, A lot of people don't know this, but uh, Fox News for months had a soft ban against Trump appearances. So for months, Mm -hmm. Trump was not on Fox. And I think that ended in quite recently. Oh, yeah, he was on Tucker. Recently. Like he was on Tucker, like a week before Tucker was fired. And then he was on Hannity. He, like the, yeah, like the he week was on Hannity. Then. The big yeah. interview that like sort of ended that soft ban was with Hannity. So Trump already came into this feeling that like Fox news had sort of dropped him that Fox news, which he, I think Trump feels that Fox News gained a lot during his presidency, which objectively they did. Um, He feels that Fox News has kind of like sidelined him in favor of DeSantis. The second thing is that like the one thing that will stick under Trump's skin and like will not let him rest is perceptions of disloyalty from the people around him. Mm -hmm. Um, We actually, I actually just put up a piece about how um, special counsel Jack Smith subpoenaed a bunch of former Trump White House employees through the, in the course of his investigation into like Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election, which is like a whole sidebar. But one of the things he's looking into is the firing of a national security expert in the aftermath of the election. 
And what they're looking at is in, and this is all based on a report from the New York Times, what they're looking at is within Trump's White House, staffers were creating memos about people in agencies, in the bureaucracy, in like Trump's inner orbit or in Trump's sort of administrative orbit who were perceived as being disloyal to the president. So it doesn't matter if you're Bill Barr, if you're Kayleigh McEnany, if you're like the head of a national security agency, Trump does not forgive disloyalty. And we have seen repeatedly that he will take action to oust, penalize, and reprimand anyone who he thinks he had a hand in building their career and has wronged him. We also see it with DeSantis. Trump has said over and over again, that man would not be governor of Florida if it wasn't for my endorsement. How dare he run against me? How dare he criticize me? That I think is like, I. it's, it's something that I think we've seen throughout his presidency, but it's mm-hmm. one of the biggest components in explaining his behavior is he cannot handle a feeling of betrayal. Yeah. Well, in this case, it was a very it was a very slight betrayal if it was oh, one yeah. because, you know, I think he she cited some poll that he was up by 20 and he thinks he's up by 30. And so even even that, you know, and I'm not sure if DeSantis was maybe on one of her shows, you know, so maybe the, there's probably a little more of a background to this than just that one segment that he was reacting to. But, you know, in the context of some of the things that other officials who have worked for Trump have said about him, it seemed like a very, very thin gruel as far as disloyalty goes. But I'm curious, I know you've written a lot about DeSantis. Um, When I looked at your author page, I think it was yesterday morning, it was like the last three posts that you had done uh, were all DeSantis related, including a big explainer on his attacks on Disney, um, you know, which is a topic that I'm sure we will be talking a lot about as the campaign ramps up this year. Um, it's, you know, a, a fitting backdrop for a lot of DeSantis's politics and his identity as Republican at this point. Um, can just get you to weigh in on this debate that's kind of percolating? You know, I, I heard the Bulwark podcast yesterday with Charlie Sykes. He had Tom Nichols on and they had mm-hmm. a long discussion about whether DeSantis is actually more dangerous or would be more dangerous as a president than Trump was. And they both came down on the side of saying that Trump is uniquely you know, a, a unique threat against democracy and DeSantis, whatever you want to say about him, um, doesn't represent an existential threat to, you know, our body politic in the same way that Trump does. But, you know, as someone who now is kind of immersed in covering a lot of DeSantis, obviously, you have a lot of background with Trump um, as well. It, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that there is something kind of uniquely terrible about Trump and that, you know, if we are, you know, progressives like us, should be concerned at this stage with doing everything we can to stop Trump from returning to office? Or do you think there's a world in which DeSantis, a president DeSantis could actually be worse than Trump? Oof. I think that question is like asking me if I'd rather have like a toaster or a hairdryer thrown into my bathwater. <laughs> like both are bad. <laughs> both will kill I, you. Yeah. Both will kill you. Bo- both will be objectively terrible. Technical production for The Aaron Rupar Show is provided by Studio Americana, an audiobook and podcast production company based in Minneapolis, serving clients nationwide. Studio Americana specializes in high-quality recording, editing, and production services. They work with authors and publishers looking to meet the growing demand for audiobook content. Their team of producers and editors ensure the process is easy and efficient. They also assist with equipment, voice coaching services, voice talent for audiobook narration, and professional podcasts. If you're ready to get started, go to studioamericana.com forward slash contact to set up a meeting. I think, yes, there is something to be said about the fact that, like, Trump tried to overturn the 2020 election. He, by all indicators, would repeat such an attempt should he not win in 2024, even if he, like, loses the nomination. I think the uniquely dangerous thing about DeSantis, the thing that, like, Trump, in my view, lacks, is how hard he has leaned into, like, the culture war, very targeted, anti-minority, anti-free speech style of legislation. Mm -hmm. I think with Trump what Republicans, what Republic, potential Republican voters are being offered is a return to a presidency they've already knew, they've already known a style of governments there are governance they're already familiar with, however awful and bombastic and like damaging that may be. 
with DeSantis, I think he is going a step beyond into like outright promising voters. I will reshape society according to this worldview that I hold, that very extreme factions of the right hold. And I also think that's probably one of DeSantis's biggest crutches. Mm. I think the style of politics that DeSantis is hawking is quite popular among like very online, very tuned in factions of the Republican right. But I don't think for the average normie, the average independent, the sort of person who kind of, you know, tunes into the political cycle every four years. I don't think that's necessarily what they're looking for. I also think DeSantis like lacks the juice. He doesn't, he he doesn't have the charisma, but in terms of which one is more dangerous, like I said, it's. Yeah. It's, it's, it's maybe, yeah, it's, it's maybe it, hard to uh, yeah. rank them. I, I, I don't have a solid answer for you yeah. because the reality is it's like, there are two people who could very severely damage the country in quite different ways. And I think like Trump is currently ahead in the race he is like dominating the early polls of course that could change as we know polling is polling is not prophecy it's not a guarantee um and i think it is important to constantly be hammering that messaging that this man tried to overturn the 2020 election represented like probably the biggest schism in our democratic system since like the civil war. I don't think we'd had like someone who like tried to tear our body politic asunder since the civil war in the manner that Trump did when he had his followers storm the Capitol on January 6th in order to prevent an election from being certified. And that should be the talking point going into this. Like this is the front runner. This is what he's done. And this is what he will in all likelihood do again. If things change, if it looks like Trump is not going to win the nomination, then yeah, you like switch your messaging. I don't think there will be a lack of people saying DeSantis sucks between now and the primaries. I think yeah. it's a matter of treating both both people exactly as what we know them to be. Sure. Yeah, I, I guess my question just comes from the feeling that I think a lot of us have who are you know left of center progressives where we're watching this primary begin to unfold and attacks, you know, DeSantis is leaning in a little bit more to attacking Trump. He's not really saying his name yet, but you know, the, the thing he's been saying on the stump recently is highlighting how Trump, you know, really added to the national debt. And, you know, he's been talking about how there needs to be no more excuses, which is kind of a, a swipe at the grievance culture surrounding Trumpism and the attempt to overthrow the election, which we've already kind of mentioned here. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you see this happening and and I kind of feel sometimes confused by it, too, where it's like, eh, you know, what should I be rooting for here? Maybe I shouldn't be rooting for, you know, maybe, I guess should, maybe the comment that should be rooting for at this point to uh, take us all out. I'm not sure. But it's, you know, it Let seems like no matter fight who... 2024. Let them yeah. fight. That's I think. At this point, with like still with the primaries being kind of like so far in the distance, Obviously, coverage is important, like covering these people's platforms, what they're saying, what they're doing, what their vision for the country is, is important. But I think the bigger that's the bigger thing, like really hammering in on why each of these people's messaging and proposals are damaging for the country is far more important than debating which one is worse. Yeah. Um, because like truly it's a no-win situation, whether Trump goes into office or DeSantis. Like, people will be harmed. Those groups might be different. They might target different, like, different minorities, different groups of people. They might implement different policies. But at the end of the day, we know exactly what they want to do to this country. We know exactly the type of policies that Trump has put in. And we know when he was president. We know exactly what DeSantis has done in Florida and what sort of environment he wants to create in the nation as a whole. And I think honing in on that is the biggest thing that can be done to ensure that both of these candidates are being handed like free support that they don't deserve. Sure. Yeah. And um, talking about groups that can be harmed by DeSantis and Trump kind of leads me to something that you wrote about yesterday, which is this weird campaign that right wingers are now launching against Chick-fil-A and, and maybe campaign is too strong of a word. It was um, a tweet, you know, kind of originated with the right wing podcaster who has a pretty large platform on Twitter who pointed out, 
basically that, you know, the entire crux of why people are mad at Chick-fil-A is that they have a diversity and inclusion program, which obviously a lot of large companies have. And you wrote about this, just kind of unpacking what's going on with this, um, you know, this anger that right-wingers have towards Chick-fil-A. And then that prompted me actually just to do some quick Googling. And, you know, it turns out Walmart has almost the exact same diversity and inclusion program that Chick-fil-A does. I mean, this is very standard for large corporations to have, you know, just to kind of have boilerplate diversity, you know, tolerance, inclusion um, for all the obvious reasons. Um, So I wonder where you think this ends. Um, It just seems very self-destructive. I mean, it's like at a a certain point, the only companies that right-wingers are going to have left are like MyPillow and Trump Water or something like that. But um, what do you think is going on here? And is this... Yeah. Yeah. And and where do you think this is going as we head into, you know, the 2024 campaign season? Oof. The thing about these boycotts is they are a moment in time and people tend to forget about them with yeah. it, with with the passage of time. Um, we were actually, some of my coworkers and I were discussing about it and our editor-in-chief Noah Shackman actually brought up an article from 2016 where someone, um, I think it was the Daily Beast, had written up a list of companies that like, if conservatives want to want to boycott every LGBTQ friendly brand, here are all the companies they can't shop at. Or here's a big list of companies they can't shop at. Guess what was on that list? Target, McDonald's. Like, obviously, it's damaging. Obviously, corporations, like in the case of Target, should not be giving any leeway to these sort of like boycotts to harassment of employees. There should be just like a zero tolerance policies. If you're going to come into a store and harass a worker who is making minimum wage stocking shelves or just like doing customer service, like, that's not a debate. That's not constructive. That's harassment. And there should be like company companies just shouldn't tolerate it, especially yeah. if like their employees are being put at risk. I think that's the first thing. Like it is also on corporations. If you're going to have this inclusivity, corporate responsibility, like we love everyone kind of statement when push comes to shove, you need to back it up. Mm-hmm. Um, I think obviously at this moment in time, like the online right is really riding high off what they feel is a very successful campaign against Bud Light, Target. And with Chick-fil-A, it really felt like this podcaster was just like, kind of, I wrote in my article, like roaming the digital countryside, (laughs) looking for the next like town, like corporate town to launch the the trebuchet at. Sure. And it happened to be Chick-fil-A. And the the interesting case with Chick-fil-A is outside of very recent history, like the last four years, Chick-fil-A has had a very antagonistic relationship with the LGBTQ community. Yeah. For years, they donated millions of dollars, oh, excuse me, of dollars to companies with explicit anti-LGBTQ policies. And for a long time, there was a widespread boycott against Chick-fil-A by LGBTQ individuals. And in response, conservatives celebrated this company. I think I'm forgetting what state it was, but there was one governor that threw like a Chick-fil-A appreciation day, a Republican governor. Yeah. No, because and- I, I was covering I, I was covering Minnesota politics in 2014, and that became an issue here because Michelle Bachman pulled some sort of stunt where, you know, she had like a week where all she ate was Chick-fil-A um, yeah. because they, they were in the, the crosshairs for being a right wing company and being intolerant. Yeah. at the time and you know how how the world has turned i guess in in nine years basically oh yeah in 2019 chick-fil-a said that they were ceasing donations to the like last couple companies that they had been accused of like donating to and supporting anti-lgbtq policies and obviously like they are run by a very christian family they are very infamously closed on sundays mm-hmm. and like we were talking about with kaylee McEnany and like a very soft like, oh, she mentioned some poll numbers that Trump thought should have been hired. What we're seeing at this point is that for conservatives, even having a like diversity and inclusion policy, which like in a way is required by law, you are not allowed to discriminate via sex, race, gender, like um, disabilities. Like those are all things that companies are required to do is have inclusive hiring practices. But even just having like a blurb on your website being like, oh, we're committed to a diverse and inclusive environment. That's enough right. for a boycott, even if you're like yeah. a pretty hardcore Christian company. Yeah, it, it's amazing. And I guess part of the 
the sense for me is that I thought we had kind of I thought uh, conservatives had kind of taken the L on this stuff a little bit. You know, it seemed like after the the 2015 Supreme Court decision, which legalized same sex marriage across the country, or at least made it you know illegal to discriminate against same sex couples in that way. Um, it just kind of felt like we had moved past that. Maybe that was naive on my part. I mean, obviously, I'm immersed in right wing media, so I, I'm not like a particularly naive person. But the way in which especially since, you know, it feels like it kind of coincided in some ways with Biden taking office. And I'm not sure why that is. But, you know, we're seeing um, just the mere fact that Target has pride merchandise and like a pride display in their store triggering these right wingers to go in there and destroy merchandise or launch these like really coordinated boycotts in the way that that has also become normalized on Fox news, on Fox business, on Newsmax as like, you know, valid outrage that people have, you know, it really seems like the goal is to kind of make it uncomfortable for any sort of queer identity to, you know, to be a part of public life. Um, So, you know, it's very disconcerting to me, but it seems like it's becoming more and more normalized. Oh, that's absolutely the ultimate goal. I think, you went like kind of circling back to DeSantis for a second. You can see it very clearly in the measures Florida has taken and the like hundreds of anti-LGBTQ bills that have been introduced throughout the country targeting trans people. But at the same time, a lot of these bills like very intentionally leave wiggle room to also suppress sort of the LGB part of representation. Not to say that any of it is okay, but I think the right has honed in on transgender people as the sort of nexus point for, like you said, a wider movement, a wider effort to really sort of oust LGBTQ people from public life. And at a certain point, it is a campaign of harassment, a campaign of uh, stochastic terrorism. We've seen the shootings. We've seen sort of the like relentless bullying online where it's gotten to a point that you have entire accounts that are idolized on the right, dedicated to just like plucking out random LGBTQ individuals who like post a TikTok or post an Instagram reel and subjecting them to the full force of the rights outrage machine. It is a horrendous act that's being undertaken. And I want to make sort of like a tangential, tangential little point here. When Roe v. Wade was overturned, as of course we all remember Clarence Thomas, Clarence Thomas wrote an opinion basically saying that any of the, that if we were going to overturn Roe v. Wade, all of the Supreme Court decisions that had been decided under like the due process right to privacy clause needed to be re-examined. Those cases include a lot of Supreme Court decisions that protected LGBTQ people and protected same-sex relationships and protected, protected people's right to sort of exist in their sexuality in the way that they identified and they were comfortable with. And a lot of, uh, there was a lot of people, a lot of people on the right saying that liberals, leftists, pointing to this rhetoric from Thomas, pointing to the fact that the overturning of Roe could lead to a down-the-line re-examining of these cases, we're being hysterical. And I think if we just look at the last six months, the things that have been happening, the boycotts, the treatment of LGBTQ people, the laws that are being passed, I would not be surprised if within the next couple of years, we see that kind of legislative push. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why there needs to be pressure on Democratic politicians on the future Democratic nominee, which will probably be Joe Biden, to ensure that those laws and protections are codified into law and that we're not relying on Supreme Court decisions anymore. That includes abortion. Yeah, I mean, we already saw it with House Republicans. One of the very first bills they took up uh, this Congress was basically trying to ban trans uh, boys, I guess it would be, from sports. and. um, You know, I mean, this is not I wouldn't think this is like a pressing concern that a lot of voters have, but it's, you know, it's something that Republicans run on. And so really, we're, we're only one election cycle away. You know, if if Republicans had control of Congress and, you know, if Trump was back in the White House or if it's DeSantis, especially probably if it's DeSantis, given, you know, how central this is to his political identity. But, you know, it's certainly not hysterical to believe that we're only, you know, a couple of years away from like major federal anti-LGBT legislation. Yeah. And then obviously with the state of the Supreme Court that can't really be relied upon as a backstop at this point either. Yeah. And that's like a terrifying notion. And 
I think one of the big things, especially like as a journalist, whenever I'm writing about LGBTQ issues, particularly trans issues, it's including the voice of the people who are on the ground. I think Ari Drennan at MMFA does fantastic work. I actually have a piece coming out with her and my colleague, EJ Dixon, and hopefully this week we're, we're churning. Um, but all about how so much of the right is now capitalizing on this anti-LGBT, anti-trans panic specifically who build their own profiles. It's not only something that like politicians view as sort of an easy issue because of course they can make all these horrendous false links to child sex abuse, to things like that. They can really like villainize this community. It's also something that influencers on the right are seizing on to build their own personal profiles. And the people who are being harmed continue to be one of the more vulnerable populations in this country. And like you said, we are very quickly approaching a reality where their existence is the subject of federal laws, their ability to exist in public life, to exert their right to like freedom of relationships, to associate with people, to publicly represent themselves in a way that is genuine is threatened. And I mean, it's it's a terrifying notion that the backstops, I think most people would hope would prevent this kind of thing, no longer exist. Yeah, yeah. When you're relying on uh, John Roberts to be the the ultimate backstop, that's a, that's a tough situation to be in. But um, let's end on a slightly cheerier note. Um, you know, you now are a staffer for Rolling Stone. And um, as we were DMing, you know, prior to recording, uh, I mentioned to you that, you know, I'm, I'm an elder millennial. So I was, yeah. you know, a high school kid. I, I graduated from high school in 02. Um, so I was kind of of that first generation where I think we got the internet like in 98 or so. So I guess it would have been like mm-hmm. 14 or 15 at the time. And around that time, I was a huge reader of Rolling Stone, the print magazine. Um, every week I would get it. I would turn to the back page and look at the billboard charts and kind of track what was going on there. Mm-hmm. And then the album reviews, um, couldn't miss those. But then also, I think it was some of my earliest introduction to political writing. And a lot of mm-hmm. that was just kind of the political shorts that they would have toward the the front of the book, um, you know, and the occasional features as well. But that was kind of, you know, really helped shape my my politics at that time, being a very impressionable teenager. Now, I know that you are um, younger than me. So I guess I'm curious if Rolling Stone, when you were a kid, kind of had that sort of cultural cachet. And then like for me, I've never had a byline in Rolling Stone. That'd be quite a trip for me just to see my name even on the website, let alone in print. But did you have any of that uh, excitement, you know, getting hired and seeing yourself be published uh, by this very prestigious and legendary uh, publication? Oh, yeah. No, most of I still I still get a little bit of a shock from time to time. I think like growing up, obviously, I I am younger than you. I graduated high school in 2014. Um, but Rolling Stone was still very present as a cultural institution, like almost famous. I have probably watched that movie more than a dozen times. Uh, it was always kind of like one of those places that I was like, wow, that would be so cool. I can't imagine what people who works there, work there's life is like. <laughs> um, and I like, the thing is, I sort of stumbled into journalism and like media reporting completely accidentally. I had a job lined up after college that sort of fell through because they lost funding, couldn't take fellows. So I was kind of like, all right, I am, I've done work in like online extremism and like historical extremist movements. Where do I go? And that's how I literally like face planted into media matters. Hmm. Um, And then three years into that, it was actually right around this time that I got hired at Rolling Stone and it came right after like the whole testicle tanning fiasco. Yeah, And I think that... Like you said, Rolling Stone has always been a like politically intertwined magazine. I think it's always been a magazine that's very unapologetic about its politics. And one of the things that I have enjoyed working there is how well it's able to kind of dance into the intersections between politics, culture, music, entertainment. It's a place where you just have because I am a political beat reporter. So most of my bread and butter is like, what is going on in Congress? What are the 2024 candidates doing? But there is so much room to kind of step into, all right, well, we're talking about these attacks against transgender people. 
how are like online influencers exploiting that on the right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of my favorite headlines ever, which I don't think could have been printed in many other places other than Rolling Stone was written by my colleague EJ Dixon, who was like, let the green M&M be a nasty little slut. <laughs> like, it's really fun to work at a place where that's the kind of angle we can take. That's the kind of content we put out. And we get to be really unapologetic about where our, what our stance is. Yeah. Um, and obviously it's like, like, you know, I still get star, I, I get starstruck by my colleagues. They're all fantastic. And they'll just be like, oh, like I'm interviewing like Bebe Rexa today or like this other artist. I'm like, that's so cool. <laughs> um, and it's given me some cool opportunities. Like I'm a, I'm, I'm a politics reporter, but I'm also like a really big Formula One fan. Oh. And I got to interview Lando Norris, the driver from McLaren a couple of weeks ago. And I think okay. like if I worked at another publication, I don't think that crossover would have ever happened. Yeah. Um, but I love it. It's been it's been incredible to work there. I'm still sort of like I still don't believe it some days. Um, but if you ever want a byline in Rolling Stone, Aaron, we do take pitches. OK, I'll keep that, I'll keep that in mind. Um, I think that is kind of a bucket list item in my career at some point. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, hopefully I've got a couple decades left yet, but um you're killing it too on the site. I, I looked at the uh, oh the trending stories this morning. I think you had like two of the five uh, trending. Although I think that's kind of your your beat there is like trending politics stuff. Yeah, right? yeah, that's all I do. Yeah, and we could do a whole separate podcast. Uh, you know, you mentioned that the Formula One. Uh, you know, and and, and like it, I'm amazed at how like big that's become culturally. There was actually someone in front of me at the Janet show last night who had like a formula one hat and t-shirt. Yeah. Um, and you know, I remember when I was younger, it was like kind of this niche thing. I had a friend who was into it and would get up for the races, you know, like early, early in the morning when they were in Europe or, you know, international races. And um, he was like the only F1 fan that I knew. And now it's like normies are into it. So what, what explains it's that? Like, it, what, what am I missing here with formula one? So especially like in the United States, it's entirely Netflix's fault. Um, and it's also, that's how I got into it. Like I, I admit it, that's how I got into it. Um, Netflix released a reality TV show called Drive to Survive about four, five years ago, I want to say. And it, the first couple seasons didn't get that much traction, but what was really clever is I think like Red Bull, McLaren, at the time, Renault and Haas, which like Red Bull very good team hadn't really like was having was still cut like hadn't really secured the championships it has now with Max Verstappen they were still kind of like working toward it um but the other three teams that they really focused on were kind of midfield back of the field teams and you just got a really funny interesting informative look at like the background of the sport and this is I love that this is off topic but I love talking about it it's one of those sports that like I've never been into race car driving. Um, I think I went to one NASCAR race when I was like 11 years old and I was just like, this makes no sense to me. Sure. Um, but when you're watching races on TV, when you kind of get into like the actual engineering of these cars, shit's wild. Like the, the fact that people crash and don't just like immediately obliterate into a billion pieces is one of the most impressive technological feats yeah. in my, of like modern history, in my opinion. Um, but it's a lot of fun. It's a great sport. Um, I would tell people, sure, watch Drive to Survive, but also okay. See, I watch the actual it, so races. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it is the fastest racing, right? Is it the, I mean, I guess maybe like drag racing is faster, but in terms of like the speed that the cars go, I think it's pretty yes. much the fit. Yeah. Well, yeah. it like sort of, um, there's like, the thing is Formula One cars are the fastest cars when it comes to like turning speeds and things like that. I think IndyCar in terms of like a straight line speed, okay. some Indy cars go faster. IndyCar is also very yeah. cool. This, this is also kind of dating uh, dating me, but um, I was a kid when NASCAR kind of had a little boomlet like in the Ooh. early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And then I remember I just happened to be watching the Daytona 500 when Dale Earnhardt uh-huh. died. But that oh. became kind of because it's, it's become so, you know, and the, it, this is probably before your time, but the crash that he that ended up killing him was like a very innocuous looking. Yeah. Like he kind of hit the wall and, no, and I he know suffered whiplash. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, the safety, like the fact that, you know, I was actually I happened to there was a TV on at a restaurant I was at last night and they had a story about a I believe it was a NASCAR driver who intentionally wrecked another car during a race and he was only suspended for one race. You know, the news was that he was suspended yesterday and they showed the the incident like it looked very dangerous to me where I was like, yeah, you could be like, this, that could be like a criminal act, you know, but I guess oh, maybe yeah. the idea is that this is racing has become more and more safe. 
And especially, I mean, this is kind of morbid, I guess, but I don't think F1 has had a fatality like in a long time, right? Like it's it's quite safe, at least in terms of they, people dying. Yeah, they haven't had a fatality in several years. Um, I think the moment that really like, like it really, it, it's a very shocking moment, but you should watch the episode. If you're going to watch Drive to Survive, one of the episodes you absolutely should watch is Man on Fire. And it's about a crash by driver. I'm going to forget his first name, but his last name is Grossman. He crashed into the barriers during the race and his car exploded. And he was in the burning car for 90 seconds before they could get him out. No injuries other than like second degree burns where his driving gloves like sort of intersected with his driving suit. Mm. And that for me was like, how how the fuck do you survive that? Because the car was obliterated. And all that was left was sort of like the central chassis, like the central hull. The wheels were gone. The front of the car was gone. The thing was on fire. And I was just like, there's no way. Like that that crash at that speed in any other other car would have like killed and ma- like maimed and killed the driver. Yeah. Um, and this is all very morbid, but I think, I don't know, as someone who is very afraid of crashes, I'm afraid of car crashes. I'm afraid of <laughs> I think no, we are. Yeah, like car <laughs> crashes and plane crashes are my like one like major phobia. Um, I think <laughs> knowing like F1 has actually helped cure me a little bit because I'm like, all right, if, if we can do that to a car going that fast, we can do it to a sedan. <laughs> it'd, it'd be a lot scarier driving if everyone wasn't afraid of car crashes. I was actually just thinking about this the other day. It's like the one thing we all agree on that car crashes are bad. So yeah. we try to avoid them. If, you know, if people were more ambivalent, I would be a lot more worried driving down the street, but um, I guess we have, we have two plugs here to take away. We have your work on Rolling Stone and drive to survive on, on Netflix, but also anything else you want to plug before we're, we're done here. Oh my gosh. I mean, obviously your work is fantastic. So if this is your first time listening to Aaron, you should Thank absolutely you. listen to him more, follow him. He does fantastic work. Um, nice no, just, you know, my work at Rolling Stone, you can find me on Twitter at Nikki MCR. Um, on Blue Sky too. I am on Blue Sky. Yeah. It is so much fun there. If you can get in, in a Blue Sky invite, join us. It's also at I've got Nikki two. MCR. No, I like it. There was, a, there was a week there where everybody was asking and I was like, I don't have any. And now I have two and yeah, I, I think I have one anymore, left. So. so, you know, hit me up. I, I have a, I have a spare invite. Um, yeah, but if, yeah, if you, no. <laughs> If you've made it this far into the podcast and you want a blue sky invite, DM me. I have two of them. I will I will give you one as a reward for listening to the entire podcast right to the very <laughs> end. So Nikki, thanks a lot for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Aaron. That's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. New episodes of the Aaron Rupar show drop every Thursday. Please like the show uh, on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your circle. Thank you for tuning in.